0: Welcome back to The Rated Change with York Wealth Management. The Rated Change is a podcast which explores the ever-shifting momentum of financial markets through the eyes of some of the brightest minds in wealth management. I'm your host, Menard Gaddy, and in today's broadcast, we're speaking with Kevin Batoli, the co-portfolio manager of PM Capital. PM Capital was founded in 1998 by CIO and Chairman Paul Moore. Its goal is to build long-term wealth by investing in global markets and Australian markets with patience and conviction. I would say PM Capital embraces the true definition of a go-anywhere strategy. And I quite like the patience to avoid firmer rallies and wait for the strongest company in space to survive a sector pullback before exploring investing at favourable valuations for the long term. With this approach, PM Capital has consistently uh, beat the average of the market since inception, with the Global Companies Fund, as an example, averaging 12.4% over five years, 23.9% over three years, and 9.6% over the past year. The fund has returned 9.7% since inception, and whilst the benchmark of the Misky World Index has returned 5.8% in this period. Kevin breaks down their process, philosophy, and after returning from a very enjoyable trip in Europe, he shares what they look for when investing in companies. For me, I found the conversation on when they time their entry into companies to be the most interesting, the patience and discipline required to avoid FOMO rallies and wait for the strong to survive in a sector before exploring buying into that business. On this point, Kevin dives into detail on investing in European banks, commodities like copper, oil and gas, and other areas such as the gambling industry. In summary, they explore, he explores investing in out-of-favor businesses at the right time, which I found really interesting. Before we get into this podcast, I'd like also like to encourage you to listen to the disclaimer at the end of this broadcast and to keep your feedback company. You can reach me at mgatty at ywm.com.au. With that being said, I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did, so sit back, relax, and enjoy it. Kevin Bottoli, welcome to the Rate of Change with York Wealth Management. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. Um, Why don't we kick things off by telling us a little bit about yourself, uh, your formative years and how you got into financial markets.
1: Yep. So I've been in the industry for about 18 years, Um, grew up in South Australia, grew up in a little country town called Wakery and basically I grew up in a family where we had a lot of entrepreneurs and small business operators. So I got a really good sense early on you know, watching people run businesses and kind of seeing businesses fail, seeing some businesses, you know, succeeding. It really kind of drove a passion in me to kind of understand why businesses you know, succeed and fail. So I went to university, did a commerce degree, did a finance degree. Um, and, you know, through that process, you know, fell in love with, you know, in, investing capital and, and the idea of investing, you know, capital as a profession. Um, and basically – uh you know through my reading came across you know PM capital in the early days back in 2004 uh you know Paul who's the founder of our business uh, had a position in Birdswood Casino um, and at the time they were being acquired by James Packer and I remember seeing that article uh in the AFR and uh basically from there kind of following the business and and then you know, getting the opportunity when I came over to Sydney to 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 work with Paul so I've been at PM capital for you know 18 years as I said uh, when I first came into the business, it was really about, uh, you know, as an analyst, building our, our coverage of you know the Asia region. If you look up until that point, you didn't really need to participate in Asian equities from a local perspective. You either bought you know really good quality uh, businesses with IP in in the U.S. or Europe or Japan, which might have manufactured in in China, but that wasn't it wasn't really a, a China or Asia story. It was a, a global kind of consumer story. Or you bought commodities as as these. Emerging markets built out their infrastructure, but what we kind of saw happening, and, and the business saw happening at the time, was this domestic consumption story growing. And I was kind of tasked with building out the coverage of, of that sector and you know, that that area of the market. But over time, it's morphed, and you know we've had um, you know a, a period where you know now, if you look at you know my role within the business, uh, co portfolio manager of our global product, you know co portfolio manager of our, our Aussie equities product. You know look after the commodity space you look after the gaming space you know look after parts of the consumer uh, space so a wide variety of coverage but that's essentially kind of how we work within the business We don't pigeonhole people to sectors we really want them to go out there and find the, the best ideas you know they can possibly find uh, in, in markets.
0: Yeah right so let's let's dig into PM capital a bit more so um, Paul Moore was the founder. Yep. And then you and then you joined. What what was his founding um philosophy? And the like, and you touched on you do cover quite a lot of areas. So what's actually the investment approach?
1: Yeah, so essentially what we're really trying to do, and we've got a great slide in our presentation, deck, and at the top it talks about the key objective. And that's really building long term wealth, you know, for our clients. So that's a pretty generic statement. But um it's important about you know how you go about that. And our belief and a bit, belief that Paul's built and instilled in us in the business is to achieve a return over and above the index over the long term, you have to be doing something different. Now, the reality is all investors tell you they will do something different, but the vast majority of people are hugging a benchmark and they're doing very similar things. So what does that mean for us? What it means is we're really focused on a select subset of the market. So the, the portion of the market, the 5 to 10% that we deem to be undervalued and then on on the flip side you know the 5 to 10% that we deem to be overvalued and we really want to focus on those parts of the market now again people say they do that but if you look at the vast majority of portfolios that talk about concentration high conviction they might have 100 150 stocks the reality is our business is built around and our portfolios are built around concentrate concentrated portfolios typically 20 to 30 stocks, but even that masks uh, a a greater uh, allocation to what we consider four, five, six, seven broader themes across the portfolio, and we really build them out over time. So how do we get to that point? As I said, we're really focused on how business generates capital over the long term, how it generates its cash flow over the long term, so we're focused on that. But what drives the decision to look at a stock is valuation? So we're really looking for that valuation observation in the beginning that drives the decision to you know, start the detailed research process. Valuation in and of itself can't be the entire uh, part of the puzzle. You know, We need to see and understand the entry catalysts that allow you to buy something or, or that makes something mispriced. And then along that journey in doing the research, we need to understand pretty quickly the catalysts that are going to allow that business to re-rate over time. Because often what you do is when you find what you consider to be undervalued stocks, they can stay undervalued for a very long time. They don't have the catalyst to drive that re-rating. So valuation alone is not enough. We need those entry and exit catalysts. Um, and another thing that we do, uh, which is probably different to a lot of managers, is we set our exit criteria You know, when we buy a position. We know the catalyst that we want to have play out. Um, and we don't change those consistently. We don't run a 12-month target price. We're a long-term investor. What we see in a lot of our positions, and what I often say is we're arbitraging our long-term view on a sector or a business with short-term machinations in markets. So We will have long-term assumptions. It might be around the earnings growth uh, and, and what type of multiple that should trade on. It might be consolidation in an industry. It could be many different things. And we're really waiting for those dynamics to play out. And they can play out over five, seven, 10 years. So global brewing is a good story. It's a, a story we had in our portfolio in a sector thematic that at its peak was you know 20% of the portfolio. But that's something we played over a 15-year period. It was a global consolidation, global premiumization story. Uh, and through the course of that, we owned 13 to 15 different businesses. And of that, half of them would have been taken out. So we're a long-term investor in nature. You know, we're concentrated uh, and, and we're very high conviction around our positions and that's built on the research that we do from the bottom up.
0: Yeah, right. So before we dig into the uh, the two funds which I want to discuss, can we discuss the mechanics a bit? Um, so from what you're saying, is the strategy essentially uh, growth, growth and raise and price, bottom up, but is it a go anywhere strategy? Because you're discussing yeah. you can do commodities, you can do tech, you got the global and the Australian, is it a go anywhere type of strategy? Because I'm looking at uh, the website, there are a number of different vehicles and funds which you currently cover. And the other question, uh, which I wouldn't mind you answering off the back of that, if it's a go anywhere strategy, and I'm looking at a lot of the numbers, say comparing the global fund compared to a lot of global fund managers out there, they all got, unfortunately, had a very, very good run up after COVID. And then a lot of them essentially gave back their returns for two years in about three months when essentially the interest rates changed. But your fund... Um, appears to take a little bit of a dip, but then continued that move up. I assume that's associated with the commodities. Can you also um, discuss, as you're saying, you're looking at the exit? Um, we're discussing off air essentially how you use derivatives to um, deal with that level of volatility to protect your, you know, what you're comfortable getting out at, but also to try to get a bit more cream on top. I'd be really interested to hear how that all mechanics work.
1: Yeah, it's a bit to unpack there, but back to the kind of first question you're correct our it goes back again to the point i made in in my previous remarks around to generate a return over and above the market, you have to be doing something different so what we've found is that by having a very open mandate um that allows us to be different to other people um so again, goes back to the founding of our business. Our funds were founded with our own capital uh, and the way we would invest our own capital. So we want to have maximum flexibility in in our ability to buy opportunities when they arise. So what that means is long short, uh, no limitation on the amount of cash we can hold, which is important in a fund that invests around thematics because a lot of the time when a theme plays out that might be say 15 to 20% of your portfolio, you tend to be selling a lot of the stocks at the same time. So we want to have the flexibility to sell that and not be constrained by a 10% cash limit. Uh, We're also not sector, uh, we're not focused on gig sectors, we're not focused on geographic limitations. We're basically asking our pool of analysts, and we think we're all analysts, I might have a title as a portfolio manager, but I view myself first and foremost as an analyst. What we're out there to do is go and find the best opportunities that we can find. Uh, One of the mistakes I think other managers make is they think having a big team is uh, better uh, and making sure you have full coverage of an entire universe. Um, But if you think about how that actually plays out from the perspective of the people that are doing the work, you might say, Murdoch, you're going to be looking after the commodity space for me. That's your sector. That's your remit. I want you to go out and look at that. Um, and I want you to come back and give me uh, some ideas. How are you compensated? You're compensated with by coming up with ideas. And if you're compensated by coming up with commodity ideas, what are you going to do? You're going to come up with commodity ideas, regardless of whether or not you actually think there's true mispricings. What we tell our analysts team is go out and find the idea wherever it might eventuate. So we have a pool of analysts that that are essentially out there to do that. Now. The second point, um, was around, uh, you know, recent performance, obviously that goes back in heart to our focus and our myopic focus on valuation. That's the starting point. Um, and valuation is not just important at the point of entry. It's important across the journey of owning a position. It gets a point where fair valuation is reached and by setting that exit criteria and setting the catalyst that we believe will create a stock to re-rate over time, uh, at the beginning of the investment, that allows us to be very disciplined around selling uh, positions when they reach those targets. So a classic example example for us has been you know, the commodity space. Now, we were investing very heavily in that during the COVID period, um, and it was all based on you know, our view of downside protections for valuation and a floor being placed in some of the commodity markets, particularly commodities like copper, which meant that the downside in the spot price was relatively protected. But the fundamental view uh, for owning those positions was around our view of the incentive price and the need for a much higher copper price longer term to drive new supply into the market. Now, when we were investing in the space in 2020 – People were telling us we were crazy um, because COVID, uh, economic uh, recession, uh, Dr. Copper, you couldn't have got a worse period for commodities. But when we looked at the valuation of a business like Freeport MacMoran in the US, at spot prices which we thought were protected to the downside, the business was trading at a mid-teens uh, free cash flow yield. If our view of incentive pricing was right, which was three fifty-four dollars $4.00. $4, um, you know you, you had a business that was on um, you know 40 percent free cash flow yields, so that's how we form that, and we have that view of where we think those commodity prices will go over time. and when they get there, we start trimming and exiting those positions and as you mentioned, we we can use derivatives and we use derivatives you know, options uh, primarily in in a couple of ways uh, to help us get set in new positions. so a stock might not quite be there, so we can sell puts. Allows us to get into where we want uh, to enter a position, makes us be disciplined around that entry price, um, and then on the exit, again the same thing. We can sell calls, and it allows us to it puts us in a position where we're disciplined around selling uh, or trimming positions, and allows us to take advantage of volatility um, or, or heighten volatility in some of the, the sectors we might be in. So, yes, so I think so. So the, yeah. the key point around the differences in the moves over the last. You know, a couple of years has really been that focus on valuation. Um, stocks performed well, particularly growth and momentum. Um, and if you've got a fundamental view of where valuation sits, sometimes you might get out early, but what you're not doing is you're just not playing that, um, you know, that momentum story. And eventually when that momentum story changes, and it was when rates moved in, you know, the back half of uh, 21, that you saw a big capitulation in the, those sectors because there was no downside support for valuation. And again, it goes back to the comment I made uh, in the introductory remarks around alignment. We've got our own capital in these businesses and we've been doing this for, I've been doing it for 18 years, Paul's been doing it for 30 years, PM Capital's been around for 25 years. It's the same process and philosophy that we've been applying for a very long period of time. We've done it across multiple cycles. One of the things that I think you've seen with some of these new funds that have entered the market is there's lots of Johnny-come-lately funds. Um, They pop up, they get one sector uh, correct, they get one cycle correct, um, and they look like superstars. The reality is you need to be able to prove that you can do it over multiple sectors. So that's the tough part, and it's very hard for investors to rotate across Themes and ideas and market cycles—it's very difficult.
0: Yeah, I hundred percent agree with that. Um, the only thing I've seen close that helps in that particular space is a hedge fund out of the states uh, that runs the the GIP model—growth, inflation, government policy—and then breaks it down with the four quads. So essentially, using monetary policy and identifying which asset class does well or poorly, you know. And that's the only way that I've currently seen as a somewhat of a Rosetta Stone that half does that, but it's another thing to actually execute and get that. Done well, you know, for an 18-year period. And it
1: and it is it is very hard because while we might be long-term investors in nature and people like the sound of contrarian, high conviction, et cetera, et cetera, a lot of the time what that means is you're talking to people about stocks that are grossly out of favor. Yeah. Because it's it's common sense to say that for something to be mispriced, it it needs to be unloved um, or misunderstood. So if, if everybody understands something and everybody likes something, it's difficult to find things that are mispriced. So when you have that view, it's hard to maintain the conviction because as an industry, we draw ourselves to the shortest of data points, which is daily share price and daily unit price. Uh, and that, that makes it, that can make it difficult.
0: So let's um. There's two funds um which I uh, uh use and quite like uh, is the global, <clears throat> sorry the PGF PM Global Opportunities Fund and the Global Companies Fund. Can you just um, the two questions I have? Because um, I really want to get into the macroeconomics and and you've covered how the philosophy and everything works. There is how's the performance been for both of those? And the other part I would want to mind you covering is the. PGF pays a quite a phenomenal dividend, and it's um, quite robust for a number of years to come. It's not guaranteed, but it's, you know it's quite robust. Can you also cover why that is the case? And
1: yep. So essentially, there are, as you said, there's two global products that we have. It's essentially the same strategy. So we look at that pool of capital as being you know, one pool of capital. It's just segregated into two uh, different vehicles. And the two vehicles are basically, um, it allows different types of investors to, to capture. So we've got the Managed Fund, which is the Global Companies Fund, which is a, a unit trust. And then you've got the PGF or the uh, PM Capital Global Opportunities Fund, uh, which is a listed investment company. But essentially, they have the same you know, remit and mandate around what they do, and they have essentially the same positions. Now, the Managed Fund's been around since '98, which was the first fund that uh, PM Capital Uh, Had upon on upon founding, and the PGF was a a fund or or a listed investment company that we launched uh, in 2013. So again, the strategy is very similar. Um, Big differences between those two is obviously a managed fund, unit trust pays out distributions. Uh, A listed investment company, you'll pay out dividend when you have uh, retained earnings. So obviously, good performance over a long period of time. If you look at the PM Capital. Uh, Global Companies Fund, which has been around you know, since yeah, um, you know, we've generated three times the return of the index over that period. Um, now, if you look at the listed investment company, it's been ra- around since 2014, a lot of retained earnings. So it gives us the ability to actually pay a consistent dividend. And one of the things that we've learned over time is that the vast majority of investors in those products are retail investors, and, and to them, dividends are very important. So the ability to pay a consistent dividend, and that's obviously um, dictated to by the board of the, uh, the PGF, uh, which is a, is a separate vehicle in and of itself, but um, the ability to pay that is really important. And we think um, you know, that's something we've guided um, you know, that the dividend that we have today is one that we think we can sustain given our current retained earnings for the next you know, four or five years. So it's very important to kind of main, maintain that dividend.
0: So what is that uh, dividend?
1: So that yeah. dividend is essentially our retained earnings over time. So you know, when we sell stocks, we realize uh, the capital gains. Because of the LICs, that they are essentially everything. So an income account. What's the percentage? So I think today, quote me if I'm, uh, uh, We, basically, I think it's about an 8 to 10% you know, dividend uh, yield.
0: So past 12 months, including, you know, what would that average return be?
1: So the average return, so if you look at our, our broader equity funds over the last couple of, so the way I think about it is from the underlying return of the portfolio. So over a long period of time, as I said, we've done that you know, kind of three times, you know, the the, the market. Um, and I think that's that's the most important number to kind of really focus on because what people often forget when they see, you know, a one or a two-year number, or a three year number, and our numbers have been very good, and it's been around those those investments in, uh, particularly in commodities, but also European banks. Um, is the is the impact of compounding uh, over a long period of time, and that's really the, imp- the, the the most important part.
0: Yeah, so I'm just looking at the benchmark here, actually on the chart. So in 2000, if you are stuck in 100 grand, it would probably be worth about just shy of 600,000. Whilst the Growth fund would be worth, what's that? Nearly one, 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 two. In comparison, yeah, it's very interesting. Um, so you just got back from Europe? Yes. God, I wish we were all in Europe right now, sitting on a beach, hitting up reams. I want to go back to Greece, miss Greece. Covid well, Greece is, just screwed is, travel yeah, really Greece. bad, and now flights are so expensive. <laughs> and then Buddy Joyce came out and as well and said, everyone's like, oh, he's going to bring the flight prices,
1: the flights down, and they're like, yeah, not yet, champ. Yeah. Anyway, how was Europe? Yeah, it was good. So I was over in Europe uh, for pretty much all of March, um, and I was over there with our other co-portfolio manager of the Aussie and Global portfolios, John Whelan. And there was really two uh, kind of purposes for the trip. We've got a lot of positions in Europe, um, so essentially went and met the management teams and and, you know the companies that we we own in the portfolio. So portfolio maintenance. And then, obviously, new idea generation, and that was particularly around, say, the industrial space in Europe. We went to a couple of conferences while we were there, um, European industrials, European financials. Um, So, yeah, it was a four-week trip, uh, a lot of corporates, um, five countries, um, and yeah, hugely beneficial for us, and and part of the ongoing process for for what we do in terms of the, the background due diligence and. Work we do on new stocks, and as you say, it was something that was made more difficult in the past couple of years, uh, you know, given COVID.
0: Yeah, so with Europe, um, obviously, we've seen uh, a number of banks fall over, you know, Credit Suisse, that type of stuff. So, how robust do you think is the um financial system currently offshore?
1: Yeah, yeah, it's, it's an interesting one because if you look at our European, as I said, European banking has been. One of our bigger portfolio positions. Um, and people say, when you say European banks again, people go, oh, European banks, you know, that's Credit Suisse, you know, it's you know, some of these big investment banks. But the reality of what we hold across the European banking space is very much concentrated around uh, certain markets where we see the competitive dynamic. Dramatically changed to what it was, you know, ten or fifteen years ago. It's becoming more Australian-like than it is European. So most people, when they think about Europe, they think about it being very competitive marketplaces. You've got um, banks from one market going into uh, a neighbouring you know country. So pre the European debt crisis, banking markets were actually quite fragmented. But what you've seen is you've seen the, the European debt crisis be a catalyst for consolidation in certain markets. So two biggest areas where we're invested is the Irish banking market uh, and the Spanish banking market. Now, if you look at say the Irish banking market, Irish and
0: Spanish, I was not going to pick that. Yeah. I remember back in the good old days, where it was the Irish Dutch sandwich? Yeah. <laughs> you did all your banking on that one street in Ireland yeah. and then you had all your intellectual property in uh, Holland. Yeah. Uh, that's I uh, I don't think that's the case anymore. Uh,
1: so if you look at, you look at, the Irish banking market—it's—it's it's a very attractive banking market today. There's there's two banks that uh, dominate, so Bank of Ireland and Allied Irish Bank, um, and you know, given the disruption that was caused over the last decade by the financial crisis in Europe, it, it meant regulators allowed incumbent banks to consolidate, uh, and that's not something they were allowed to do, you know, prior to that. They The regulators were were happy with fragmented banking markets. Spain's exactly the same. You know, Spain is a market where the top three or four banks are now sixty five percent of the market. Um, You go back a decade ago, and you know the top ten wouldn't have been sixty percent of the market. So a dramatic change in the landscape. And there are also markets where uh, the banks have simplified. You know, they've sold off international exposure. They've Bought uh, focus back on their domestic, you know, retail banking businesses. Uh, and that we think that makes for a better business going forward and one that can generate uh, higher returns.
0: So if I'm understanding correctly, mm. I think I, I, think I am. So essentially what you're looking for is you're looking for a big sector of the market or a particular area that's had its head knocked off. And then how you survive down the bottom is they all consolidate, fix their balance sheet, you know, tighten the belt type routine. And then you're trying to get in at that particular level, then starting heading up. You mentioned as well, you like the gambling space. Mm-hmm. So uh, this is actually very, very topical right now. Um, I'll tell you off air why. But essentially, we're seeing um, due to the increased taxes, the screw-ups in the States, you know, how it, it opened up. There was a huge boom through that particular period. You said point points bet, mm-hmm. but now it got torched because there was two main competitors in the state that took all the businesses, but all the other competitors out there, still the same overheads, right? But you, uh, there's a massive consolidation play currently, both domestically and internationally in that particular space after same scenario, which you're discussing mm-hmm. before, that a huge uplift with the COVID, right? Yes. You know, everyone loved to gamble, but then it's all kind of come off. Is that
1: essentially... Yeah. What you identify as an opportunity. So it's, it, you know, it's an astute observation because the reality is that is exactly correct. We want to identify long-term structural thematics that we believe will play out over time. Yeah, and we want to use the short-term machinations of markets to be able to buy that because things go from being overloved um, to overhated in. Uh, you know, through through a cycle, so you can uh, you can be patient and, and wait for opportunities to to arise. And you mentioned sports betting. Now, it's an interesting one because you know, our gaming exposure is has largely been and and still largely is today around Macau, uh, which has been through a lot of disruption through COVID. But we do have a position in Flutter, uh, in in the sports betting space. Now, I could talk about you know Flutter for for hours, but I don't think we've got the time. But what was, and what's really interesting about, um, you know, that story is it was one that was really first identified, you know, to us when we travelled to Europe back in 2017. And we were looking at the sports betting businesses listed in the UK. So at the time there was uh, GVC, which is now Entain, uh, William Hill, which is now, um, was acquired by Caesars. Uh, and Paddy Power Betfair, which is now essentially the flutter business. And we were looking at the sector then because the UK, which was a large, obviously the largest exposure for those businesses, was going through the triennial review, which was looking at uh, regulation into the betting shops, so your, your local TABs. Um, and there was a lot of uncertainty around what that regulation would do to the earnings power of these businesses. So the stock sold off. we didn't invest at the time because we couldn't get comfortable around what that impact was going to be and it ended up being a large impact. But one of the things that stood out to us is that all three operators were talking to us about this opportunity that was, they hoped over time going to play out in the U S market, U S market, biggest gaming market in the world, but where you didn't have legalized sports betting. So we went away and, and I went away and I, Try to do as much work as I could to understand, you know, what was at play in the US and how that might unfold, you know, over time. Um, and then obviously in 2018, you got the repeal of the PASPA law, which was the law that prohibited every state outside of Nevada from actually, um, you know, betting on sports. And it was because Chris Christie, the governor of New Jersey at the time, um, took that law to the Supreme Court got overturned on the basis that the federal government couldn't tell states how to uh, tax their populace, which allowed New Jersey to open up. And over that period of time, you've had, I think there's there's 30 plus states now that you have legalized sports betting, either online or or, or through retail. Now, what was interesting is uh, COVID pulled forward a, a lot, a lot of demand. Um, you know, people, um, you know, were at home. They. What else did to spare. you have to do except for <laughs> exactly? A so drink, walk around the block. Propensity to spare bed. money. Um, but the other thing that it did is it drove this focus with rates being zero on anything that was growth. So if you look back at that time, the acquisitions that were being made in the space, the IPOs that were coming to market, points bet being a classic, uh, you know, example. People were just chasing market share uh, and and customers. So it led to the market to do some really dumb things. Um, But then when the rate environment changed, so did the attitude of investors and it became about profitability. So you had a business like Flutter, which was trading at 160, 165 uh, pound Um, stock basically gets cut in half um, because There's this concern that the industry is never going to make money. But we know from the work that we've done, we understand how these sectors or this sector plays out over time and the consolidation you do see uh, and the scale that the the number one player and the benefits of scale in the number one player can bring. And we actually thought that that was magnified in the US because of the structure of how the market is set, basically state by state. Legislation, so it makes it hard for someone to come in and just put their product across the entirety of the U.S. market. So we bought that position um, in March of last year when it was trading at about eighty pound. Now, what's interesting when you look at that business is when we bought the business, we had a fairly conservative sum of the parts valuation. You fast forward to uh, November, sorry, September, October of twenty twenty two, and and Fox, Rupert Murdoch, had the opportunity to buy an 18% or has an opportunity and an option to buy an 18% stake in that business, but they couldn't agree on price. So it went to arbitration and arbitration essentially valued the FanDuel, which is Flutter's US business, uh, at about 17.5 billion pound, which was essentially the entire market cap of the Flutter business at the time we bought it. So we got over a billion pound of earnings Uh, essentially for free but it highlights how something can go from being in favor and out of favor despite the long-term structural dynamic in the U.S. market not really changing for a business like Flutter which is the dominant number one player Um, so you got a lot of people particularly here in the local market they wanted to find something that was exposed to U.S. sports betting so they went out and bought the only thing that they could buy which was points bet and the unfortunate Points, thing-
0: PointsBet it, lost that battle.
1: And they did and they, yeah. they were, to be honest, we never had a position and it looked silly when the stock went to 15 bucks. But the reality was um, it's a capital-consuming business in the early stages. It was competing against a behemoth, really two big behemoths that have a big pools of capital. So Flutter, as I said, it had over a billion pound in- uh, EBITDA coming from the rest of the world, Australia, and the UK being its two biggest markets, um, it already had a product. Um, it had the benefit of this product innovation across the globe. You know, Australia basically created that multi-bedding uh, product and they parlayed that into – parlay is another word for multi, but they've, they've put that over into the US market – uh, and done very well but points bet was 100% reliant on capital markets and their ability to continue to raise capital and even if they got another raise off the reality is would they ever be able to compete against those big boys i don't i, I didn't think that they could
0: so when you go looking for these opportunities do they have to be listed only or do you look at unlisted
1: vastly what we do is listed yep
0: okay so yeah look these these cycles we see right you, you used to get this boom you know after pay you get that particular thing rip up because essentially you know one door closes another opens right opportunities so the most recent one the past couple of months is our good old fan favorite which helps me out with uh, all my lovely social <laughs> media our one big friend chat-
1: questions for today
0: chat gpt yep um yeah i've been be looking at nvidia this morning i think nvidia jumped from like what a hundred bucks oh adobe it's gone up. it's gone up like four times in the past six months microsoft's gone up you know what 200 to 300 uh, do you have any ex- i always get the question and we're uh, you know how do you get access to this space how do you participate What what are your thoughts or do you think do you think you can invest directly in a business to benefit from this, or do you think the tool which is being created, you know, that's owned by Microsoft and Google, is more of a tool, and you're seeing efficiencies improve inside the businesses which have a particular outcome? What are your, What are your thoughts?
1: Yeah. So what I would say is, very early days. Yeah. Um, so understanding how this is going to play out is very difficult, but that's why I say something like Nvidia's performed so well because it's the Picks and shovels of uh, you know this iteration and technology kind of innovation, so that's why they're doing so well. Being able to predict who benefits the most and who's the most impacted is going to be quite difficult, and you're gonna you're gonna see that kind of play out over time. So I think we're still early days. You know, there's certain businesses that we've you know looked at that we think you know have exposure to that. They might not be. Um, you know the direct, you know, um, you know the direct end product, but through that uh, supply chain or, or the, the various stakeholders, there's going to be opportunity to invest. It's going to come back again to valuation.
0: Well, I was about to ask that. Do, you mind, that's the do you mind if I rephrase that? Right, you know, because we're we're seeing the same thing again, which you see time and time again. You get that FOMO, fear of missing out, people ripping into it. You know, valuations start to pitch up, right? But just going back to your philosophy about how you invest, you're trying to find you know, the Dutch Irish sandwich situation, you're trying to find, you know, the consolidation in, um, you know, the gambling space in Australia. How do you deal with essentially the new tech? It's up and running. It's moving so, so quick. You know, you have to be in it. Valuations might not be there. How do you deal with that?
1: Yeah, well, I I would caveat to say that we don't have to be there. Right. So if you look at our history and the ability to generate those long-term returns, we haven't been rotating uh, into the things that are the most popular at the time. We we want to wait till those things become grossly out of favor and and then buy them. So we, when Fang was going um, gangbusters, we weren't in that sector, but we still managed to perform. um, Okay. So to us, it's more, what is going to protect us over time is valuation. So what we do want to do is we want to monitor these things like a sports betting, like commodities, um, and we wanna we wanna we know it's gonna be a longest longer term thematic and through that and over time things will go from overvalued to undervalued and we wanna be in the right position and have having done the work when things uh when when things are being mispriced. So a, a good example would be, you know, we had positions in the semi-cap equipment uh businesses, so you CLAC, AMAP. Uh, the businesses that build the equipment that makes the chips Um, and we initiated positions in September of last year at the time everyone was talking about you know excess inventories in the space um, because of uh, your pull forward of uh, ordering through COVID everyone was worried about not having inventory so going from just in time to you know I just need a lot of inventories you had China US Um, blocking of selling chips into China, the impact that would have on equipment spend. At that point in time in September, no one was talking about ChatGPT. It wasn't wasn't in any broker notes. Um, Those businesses over a six-month period rose by 50%, uh, but it got to a point where the valuation was no longer attractive to us, so we sold those positions. Yes, they've gone up a little bit more from there, but fundamentally, Our job is to understand earnings power of these businesses and how you should value them. And and, and sometimes though, that valuation, when people are looking at a share price and the fear of missing out, what they can forget is, is the earnings keeping up with the multiple that you're affording that business
0: yeah, it's just, it's just such an interesting space. And it's, it's like, it's easy to look at hindsight and go, yeah, yeah, you don't do that. You wait till it comes off, consolidates, and then you buy. And then you, you move into the next thematic, which is chat GPT, it's up and running. And then yeah, your mindset's like, yeah, but I should buy that. Right. You know, yeah. <laughs> it's like, but then all of a sudden you're back in the next horse. Um, uh, yeah, it's just so interesting about it, how, it, how it all works out. So why don't we discuss, um, your outlook? So, um, you know, with the markets where they are, they, you, you talk to one person on the street, I think the, what's they saying? The biggest bet on the street right now is everyone thinks he's going to be a hard landing, right? Uh, and what's interesting about that, that is looking back at Makabari, when when essentially he called the GFC, he put the bets on in 2006, nearly went bankrupt yep. and then took two years for that to come out. So there's an old quote, uh, you know, don't be right, just make money, right? So in saying that, and the reason why I'm phrasing it that way, we've seen everyone's been short this market for a while now, considering, but the market's had a big rally. So what, what are your thoughts on um, where the market's going and how are you positioning Yeah, so a-
1: again, yeah, they're always the toughest questions you know, to answer because you know, for us, we're, we're more focused on those longer-term stories and when the market kind of misrepresents and becomes very short short term in, in focus and so when you get these periods where you get um you know shorter term concern around recession whatever we won't know we, when we realize we're in a recession we would have already been in one for you know two quarters right <laughs> so yeah, it's kind of backwards looking it's always looking in the mirror um so in the h- short term it's hard but what i would say in markets you've seen big caps again you know rallying so your flight to this, this safety, you're seeing it not just globally, but you're also seeing it uh, in the Aussie market. But underlying, there's actually been a lot of carnage. So with liquidity tighter, you know, smaller cap businesses, pre-profitability businesses have been you know, cut to shreds. Um, so that is, you know, I think, going to create opportunities for us as investors to invest capital because there are some great businesses there um, that. Um, are at the at the point where you know they they can continue to grow, but the market's not really focusing on them as an individual business. It's more around a shift and a move in where people are putting capital. I was having a conversation with an asset allocator uh, a fortnight ago, and he was saying, "Yeah, over the last couple of months, we've taken all of our money out of smalls and mids, and we've reallocated it to large caps. We just think it's a bit safer now." So that flow has a has a material impact on particularly businesses with low liquidity. So you know, we think that that actually is a big opportunity at this point to to look for new ideas. One of the things I would you know, also add to that is the most difficult thing today is predicting earnings power or earnings power of a business. So if you think back prior to COVID and you had a fairly steady you know, market, you had rates Low. Um, there wasn't a lot of, you know, disruption. Businesses were just chugging along, you know, nicely. If you actually go through COVID, it's, it's an interesting period. For some businesses, it's been hugely disruptive. For others, it's pulled forward a lot of demand. So on the revenue line, there's beneficiaries and there's ones that have seen COVID being a detractor to their business. Then on the cost side, you've had inflation, which come has come about over the last couple of years. You've had Russia Ukraine. So I was trying to get an understanding of the true earnings power. And you, you use Australia as an example because we all know the market. There's a lot of businesses that are tied to the health of the Aussie consumer. Uh, and as you said, you know sports betting, what did, what did you have to do? You either walked around the park, you watched TV, you put on a bet. You also went onto the internet and bought a lot of stuff. You bought a lot of stuff. So you've seen a lot of pull forward. You've seen earnings at record levels. Um, so where do the earnings of these businesses rebase to? Uh, is going to be key into an environment where you've had the steepest uplift in rates you've had basically ever, um, and preceding that, people entering into uh, fixed rate mortgages. So, and that cliff starting to come off. So we don't know the impact of that. So, what it means is it's, it's quite hard to get the e right in, in a PE or in, in a in a in a multiple that you're looking at. Um, that's the thing I would say is, is, the, is the most important point at today.
0: Focus on the earnings. Cause the other thing which I'm hearing a lot as well is like those, was growth at any price? People are like, yeah, yeah, we'll borrow a huge amount of money today, you know, in 10 years we'll pay yep. it all back. And then they blew up. And then now I'm speaking to, um, business owners, uh, a very good friend, cybersecurity business, global ones. And all their mates in tech, all they care about right now is just tightening that belt, right. making sure it's profitability. And it just reminds me—it's very reminiscent when Gillard blew up the mining the mining industry with that super tax, and you remember um, everything came off. But if you really look at what happened there, in the, again, consolidation play. Right, the miners that survived the ones that you know cut all the discretionary spending that wasn't necessary. They focused on what they were doing. They ensured the profit margins. They just tightened that belt and they just waited and prepared for essentially because they, uh, for the commodity price to come back in their favor. And then the smart ones sold those assets into strength. And then they used the last that capital to go and expand again. Right. Do you think uh, that's essentially the smart, where the smart businesses right now, is that what, the strategy is,
1: yeah, so it's like put it to you like wildfire, yeah. Right? If we left nature untouched, you would get wildfires and it would clean stuff out, and then it allows regeneration to occur and the natural uh process of uh nature taking its course. Now, it's the same in business, somewhat. If you look at what happened again, use Australia here uh, as an example. Money was free. It changed the way people behaved. It changed their perception of risk. So you look at assets like uh, cryptocurrency, you look at uh, businesses that were basically show-me stories, uh, concept stories. And that mindset was uh, facilitated by your ability to get capital off people um, and just tell a great long-term story. And investors were wanting to hear that. So that perpetuated the story again. It just became self-fulfilling. And management teams, they lapped it up and they went, well, I can grow. I, I can get capital. I can grow faster. And then all of a sudden, the light, is, the light switch is flicked and it becomes about profitability And then you've got all these businesses that are overextended themselves, they're growing beyond their own um, cash generating capabilities, but the market turns quickly. One day they want growth, the next minute they want profitability. A business cannot change that quickly. So there's a lot of businesses out there and management teams that have been um, made to look the fool by listening to to capital markets um, and not running the business how they probably think they should have ran it. Now, you're right. What this environment does is it weeds out uh, the poor businesses. It reduces competition. So survivors are in a phenomenal you know, position. Uh, we spoke about sports betting. If you look at that US market today, Flutter's 50% of that market. Everyone's dialing back expenditure uh, on uh, promotions except Flutter. They're leaning into it because they can. They're the biggest player, so this flywheel that they've created, this product that they can create by being 50% of the market, reinvesting, making the product better. When you've got a competitor that sits on 2% or 3% market share, how can you invest at the same rate as a business like Fanjul? Like you can't. So that goes across multiple industries. So it cleans out the, the 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 industry, and I think that's a a big positive as you move forward. You'll be able to find great businesses that are in pretty good positions to to benefit from what's happened. And I think the best management teams you find recognize that in their businesses and they step into it. I'm 100%
0: going to uh, <laughs> acquire that wildfire analogy <laughs> going forward. It is it, it, just the wildfire analogy. You can just see it. It just resets. It's the Australian wildfire. It just makes so much sense. But if you look back throughout history, historically it happens all the time um but it we've is we've got very short memories yeah we got very but, short
1: again memories. it's because we draw our attention to this the shortest data point so we we write monthly reports people look at our monthly returns we're gonna Plus have information
0: in right reports. now tiktok seven Six. seconds right seven seconds is what it requires to essentially catch your attention like you know the youth coming through today right it's very we look very very interesting to see what happens in about 20 years time um so how can uh listeners and investors uh access um the funds? Are you on platforms are you on um, any investment bonds or anything equivalent
1: yeah so as I said before, for people out there who want to access our products, you can do it really on in in two ways you've got the managed funds, which is on most of the <laughs> platforms out there, so uh Pretty much all of the big platforms, all the relevant platforms, we're on those. So both our our global and our Aussie you know, equity strategies, um, and then we've also got that listed investment company. Now, the great thing about listed investment companies is very easy. It's like going to buy BHP, going to buy Comsec. You just go on. Uh, sorry, uh, uh, Commonwealth Bank. You just go on to Comsec. Uh, you type in the ticker PGF, and you know you you can buy a stock like any other. So. It's product for different types of people. So advisors out there, you know, you know, the managed funds, uh, obviously an easier uh, or an easy alternative, but for retail investors out there, you, you have the, the, the listed investment company.
0: With the managed fund, what's the liquidity?
1: Uh, the, the daily redemption.
0: So daily redemption? Daily application
1: and redemption. Yep. Yeah,
0: right. So if I stick in, say, with a particular platform at 12 o'clock with a cutoff, I'll get the money out the next yep. day. That's good to know. How much, sorry, how much money is in the fund currently?
1: So if you look at the listed investment company, that's about a little over 700 and the managed funds just under 700 million.
0: And um, you did touch on um, uh, alignment, but what are the fees?
1: So basically the fees, you, there's your base management fee, uh, which is 1%, um, and then you've got a performance fee, uh, which has a cash uh, and index hurdle. What's the index? Uh, the index is the MSC... MSCI global
0: mci global another question i keep getting from clients is what's the style of the fund and the reason i'm phrasing this is you go on to various um research houses and they say oh these people are active but then you do a bit of digging they're not actually active so what would yes. you say is your style of investing yeah so from an activity
1: one of the so from a from a uh, turnover perspective the, the turnover of the funds 25 to 30%, so relatively low turnover, but it's it's a function of that long-term investing. So we're really focused on the things we do own. From uh, the tag, you often get the tags of value versus growth. I kind of don't like those terminologies because my view has always been that those categories are porous. You want to buy a stock that's in the value category. You want people to realize... Well, you want your view of the ability of that business to grow to be recognized by the market and then it's become a a growth business. So Visa is a classic example. We bought that back in 2011 when it was considered to be an old world payments network um, and it was viewed as being a value stock because people misunderstood or or feared uh, transition which didn't come to play and impact that business, uh, and it's continued to execute very well and grow its earnings uh, in you know the the you know, mid teens per annum, um, and it becomes a growth business. So, I think it can be used as an excuse for people because they say, "Well, you know, our fund was down because we own growth stocks." No, you own stocks that were being mispriced by the market, and the market's now changing the value of how they should price those stocks so yes they were growth but they were overvalued and you didn't take into consideration it goes to your view before or comment before around growth at any price
0: well this is what i'm finding difficult sometimes Is you go through the list and say this is a growth fund right but essentially my understanding of a growth fund it should be growth a global growth fund should be anything global growth right but what we're starting to see is one just focus on the nasdaq or just focus on this so essentially it's just moving up and Line and if it comes off like fifty percent, like oh, we still beat the market. But I'm mean, like, yeah. hold on a second. Your job's to get us up the mountain, down the line of the other side. Isn't yeah. that correct?
1: And again, that that's why our funds have always been a very open mandate because um, what we found over time is capital can go in and out of whether it's growth, whether it's value, whether it's emerging markets, whether it's developed markets, whether it's commodities, you know, whatever it might be um we want to be able to play any of those things when we see opportunities arise we don't want to get ourselves pigeonholed and being stuck there and saying well you know well we're really we've marketed ourselves as a growth fund and then all of a sudden well what are you got to, and or you 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 basically start buying other things and pretending like they they're growth things or you you see that today with technology and innovation funds it's so like you look at some of the stuff that these people own <clears> and sitting there saying i can't really quite see the innovation play that you've got there but you need it because it's the only place you can find value so what we try to do is not label ourselves as being something or you know one i'm thing. going
0: to say something quite uh political here uh, you know maybe in or out of favor but like I, I appreciate what everyone's doing with esg as an example it's the right thing you should be esg mindseted, but I've looked at the numbers. Actually, the best way to play the ESG trade for the past five years has been commodities. Yes. It's not actually to invest in a company that's associated with ESG or has a tagline or you know, makes things pretty or this, any other. If you want to invest in that ESG trade, it's been the commodities play.
1: Yep. Would you agree with that? 100% right. Now, the interesting thing about ESG is, again, it's one of these things that happens in markets which actually drives the inefficient allocation of capital. It's pushing capital to areas um, where people uh, think that it should go. So if you actually look at, and we use that as a filter, you know, we look at those things and say, is that creating an opportunity for us to buy assets um, that are being mispriced? So if you look at the best trade around uh, ESG, it was actually to go and buy the businesses where the capital was sucked from. So that was fossil fuels. So if you look at oil as an example, the end of 2021, energy in the S&P 500 uh, as a a sector weight was 2.5%, the lowest it had ever been, right? If you go back to the late 70s, that was closer to 30%. If you go to just before the GFC, it was about 15%. So basically, no one was invested in that sector. On top of that, you had shareholders basically telling corporates not to reinvest in supply. So basically saying, we don't want you to shell Exxon. We don't really want you to grow production. We want you to give us all the cash back right? because we see this cliff of uh, oil demand in 10 years. So don't reinvest. Then you had governments going out and telling corporates that they couldn't reinvest back into production. The US government, a classic example basically not allowing businesses to reinvest back into production. The Dutch government telling Shell that they had to reduce their emissions by 40%. So all of this created an environment where it was ripe for supply-demand imbalance within the oil and gas space and a mindset of corporates to change their view of returning capital to shareholders and not reinvesting it. So we invested in that space. We invested in oil and gas. We invested in met coal. The most overvalued stocks were wind, renewables and businesses where they hadn't proven to the market that they could generate a healthy and sufficient return on capital over time. But capital went there because you had big asset allocators, super funds, big endowment funds saying, well, we need to have an ESG component. We we need to have ESG in our funds. So push capital to that limited space uh, limited availability in terms of uh, things you could buy and pushes valuation up
0: I'm all for ESG um, if it's done well and correctly and the people benefit like I'm a big fan of like social impact investing and that type of thing what I don't like is greenwashing
1: yes and, and I think come that, and, that's think, the to and bear. it's
0: just the human nature and the sociopaths out there that go hey you know great idea to make some money let's just push this thing and they've got no actual interest in delivering upon it and then it just creates an industry it pushes everything up and then you know, and, and
1: to right? be, be honest, honest, I agree 100%, because if you think about our business and what we're really doing, as I said, to answer the first question is, when, you're looking at, when we're looking at businesses and we're wanting to be owners of businesses over a long period of time, what's most important to us is the ability for that business to generate and grow cash flows over time, then what they do with that cash flow, and then what the market's willing to pay for that cash flow. Right? That's, that's the focus. Cash flow in very short periods of time, i.e. 12 to 24 months, can get out of whack. You can have volatility in cash flow, but we're worried about that longer stream of cash flow. Now, to know that, you have to understand governance, environmental, social. We've been doing it for 25 years. You have to do that when you are looking at cash flow. To say that you don't do that is... you're neglecting three things that drive cash flow over time. So we've been doing it since we started this business. Paul's been doing it for 30 years. It's the crux of what we do. We don't need to get out there and wave, you know, a green peace flag to tell people that we're doing it.
0: Now, Kevin, I know you got another uh, meeting to jump to. I think we definitely should have you back on because I'm really, really enjoying this conversation. Probably about six months' time. I think sounds good. I think this would be a lot of fun. Uh, probably a, a bit longer one next time. Yeah, very good. <laughs> so is there any uh, thoughts you want to leave our listeners with?
1: Uh, I think we've touched on a fair bit.
0: We've touched uh, on a lot, but have yeah,
1: uh, happy investing for the next six months and'll yeah, <laughs> uh, we'll come back and we'll uh, will we'll diagnose uh, what's what's played out.
0: Sounds good to me. Well, thank you very much for coming on the Rated change again with York course management, and I hope you have a great
1: day. Cheers, appreciate it.
2: Any views expressed in this recording do not represent the view of any other third party and other sole personal opinions of the speaker. Any reference to financial product does not constitute advice or recommendation, and before any action, you should seek proper advice from your financial professional. Australian listeners should head to www.moneysmart.gov.au to find more information on obtaining financial advice. To get in touch with York, head to our website www.yorkwealth.com.au. Any views expressed in this recording do not represent the view of any other third party and are the sole personal opinions of the Speaker. Any reference to financial product does not constitute advice or recommendation and before any action, you should seek proper advice from your financial professional. Australian listeners should head to www.moneysmart.gov.au to find more information on obtaining financial advice. To get in touch with York, head to our website www.yorkwealth.com.au. Any views expressed in this recording do not represent the view of any other third party and are the sole personal opinions of the speaker. Any reference to financial product does not constitute advice or recommendation and before any action, you should seek proper advice from your financial professional. Australian listeners should head to www.moneysmart.gov.au to find more information on obtaining financial advice. To get in touch with York, head to our website www.yorkwealth.com.au.